מה נעשו? So this afternoon I will run through once again that same passage of Padmasambhava's teachings on Vipassana, this time more briefly, just in case you did not gain full realization in one day. <laughs> If you did, then I would suggest while I'm talking, just ignore me and just go into meditative equipoise. Um, but also there's kind of some good news. Um, last night, I think it was especially, the last two nights, um, I've been listening to some recordings of teachings I heard years ago, five years ago, from young people um, on Dzogchen. And it just, by blessings, good fortune, uh, the section of the teachings that I was listening to over the last couple of nights were exactly on Vipassana. And he made a couple of points that were just crystal clear and so utterly relevant to this that I will augment a little bit these teachings of Padmasambhava from this oral transmission of Yangtang Rinpoche. And although I'm merely a secretary, I'm just kind of like the switchboard service, uh, this is a man that actually has realization. He's achieved shamatha. He's achieved vipassana and very deep realization in Dzogchen. So his words really count. Mine count only insofar as I'm transmitting without distortion. And that, in that way, my words count. Otherwise, I'm nothing. But let's go back to Padmasambhava. Here's another one who knew what he's talking about. And we're back to engaging in the search for the mind. I'm going to read through it again briefly, but I'll just highlight two themes especially that came out um, in these marvelous quintessential teachings from Yantan Rinpoche. So engaging in the search for the mind. So now briefly, perform the adhisara, the posture and the gaze as before. Steadily place your mind in the space in front of you and let it be present there. So I see a number of you have the text. Excellent. Oh, so, let, so, so far, very familiar. It's, it's kind of nice to, when you're venturing into new, new territory, to see some things that are all, already familiar, that it's not immediately alien, right? And that's what this certainly is. But then he immediately goes in a bit, more, more deep, a bit deeper than in the preceding section, which had a strong overlap with the awareness of awareness. He says, examine well. What kind of, kind of an entity is this, your mind that you have placed today? your mind that you have placed today. And then he, he does raise an issue he didn't earlier, and that is look to see if the one who is placing the mind, the one who is placing the mind, and the mind that is being placed are one or two. All right? So there's, this is now clear, bona fide vipassana practice. It is inquiry, really probing into the very nature of the mind, that which is controlling the mind, that from which mind and intention springs, and so forth. If there were two, there would have to be two minds. That is, one that's doing the placing and the other one that's, that's being placed. The placing should be the, the awakened one. The one that's being placed, moving all over the place, would be the un unenlightened one. So one must be in Buddhahood while the other roams about in the cycle of existence. So carefully, decisively observe whether they exist as two. If there is not more than one, is that one the mind? But then... How can it just be one if you're placing it? So this relates back, I'll relate back to you, Yen, the question about Buddha nature. Is there just one Dharmakaya? Is there just one Buddha nature? Does every sentient being have one's own Buddha nature? Now, of course, we're going to the utmost depths, the deepest dimension of consciousness, where I meant and where it's stated so explicitly, unequivocally, that when you go to that dimension, it transcends the very distinction of unity and diversity. It, is it one thing or is it differentiated? Is it one unified dharmakaya? Is it one unified dharmakaya or is dharmakaya differentiated? Okay, so one for Maitreya, one for Pat, for Buddhist Shakyamuni and so forth. And the Dzogchen approach here is unequivocal and that is, it's beyond that distinction altogether. So we see he's touching on that here. There's so many, again, the, the, the image of spiral comes up so often. And that is, we touch on these, but each time we go deeper and deeper. And this will be a recurrent theme this afternoon. So asking, is it two? Well, that's kind of weird. You got two minds? Are you bipolar? Are you multiple personality disorder? What kind of a problem is this, two of you? And we, when we have that, oh, I'm such a schmuck. But a person, the person who just drew that conclusion at least is not as much of a schmuck as the guy that I'm thinking is a schmuck. You know, so schmuck you. Schmuck you. you know. <laughs> And so if there were not, if there are not one, is that one the mind? Observe, what is the reality of the so-called mind? It is impossible to find it by searching among external objects. So the first point from Yantanabuji's core teachings, 
when it says, what is the reality of the so-called mind? Now, you see quotation marks there. Or in Tibetan, it would be sem shijawa. Sem shijawa. So the so-called mind. In other words, the word. So you're taking that word mind or esprit or geist or whatever is your native language for this term. We usually find something that more or less corresponds. And then we're asking, what is the referent of the term? The point from Yangdan Rinpoche, which I think is very, very deep, is that all phenomena, whether we regard them as objective or subjective, all phenomena are empty of the labels we impute upon them. All phenomena are empty of the labels we impute upon them. And, that, and, and he elaborated, we ever so frequently conflate, completely fuse the phenomena that we're attending to and the label that we impose upon it. Right? So, and that fusion is confusion, fusing together in a delusional fashion, imagining to be one that which is in fact utterly distinct. The phenomena are devoid of the labels we impute upon them. That, I think, is almost transparently true. And at first glance, one might think, yeah, it's trivially true. We already knew that. Nature doesn't speak in Spanish or Italian or whatever, whatever. But if you start looking again, you find, however it might appear at first glance, this is not a trivial statement. And especially if you take it in, when you take it in, when you think of Soviet Union, think of United States, think of Mexico, think of anything that you're familiar with, your spouse, parents, and so forth, the label comes out and see if it's not the case that the label is completely fused with the appearance, the phenomena, right? And that fusion is confusion. But if we go, if we, and that's what he explicitly said, see that the phenomena and the label that you impose upon it are different, they are not the same, and we deludedly think of them as being completely inextricable, indivisible, and they are divisible. And so he said at one point, simply be aware of phenomena without imputing any labels whatsoever. And you, just, you may, you, you may just may see their actual nature. So here's from a Dzogchen master speaking in the 21st century, and he's saying the same thing that the Buddha said to Bahia. In the seen, let there be just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the felt, just the felt. In the mentally perceived, just the mentally perceived. By so doing, and, and now that's pretty much a direct quote, and then, close paraphrase, then the Buddha said, and by so doing, you will see there is no thing in here. And seeing no thing in here, you will see there is no thing out there. And by seeing there is no thing in here and no thing out there, you realize nirvana. And Bahia did. At the end of the discourse, he attained nirvana. So, nirvana is the same as emptiness. He is realizing the, the emptiness of any phenomenon in here. Mind, me, empty of inherent nature. And then, this being empty, then it's almost like an echo. Not quite the same, but it's almost like an echo. If this is all empty in here, then from that vantage point, you ever so quickly begin to see that all of these objects that I'm apprehending out here, that the mind that is empty apprehends and reifies, have to be empty. How could they not be? So, it starts with labels. But then, what is a label? So, Hakai, Hakai. Yangdan Rinpoche himself said, when you attend to me, you may very well completely conflate Yangtan Rinpoche, Yangtan Rinpoche. Think, I really am Yangtan Rinpoche. He said, if I was really intrinsically Yangtan Rinpoche, I would have come out of my mother's womb and said, hi, I'm Yangtan Rinpoche. But he said, did, people didn't start calling me that until I think, he's, I think he said 13. So this is a label, but I am not Yangtan Rinpoche. That is a label that's been imputed upon me. But now what is a label? What is a name? Other than a verbal articulation of a concept. So clearly what he's saying is all that we are conceptually imputing upon phenomena are not there in the very nature of the phenomena. That's the whole deal why it's called imputing and not discovering. All of our conceptual imputations, they're not already out there. They're that which we are projecting, superimposing, imputing, 
placing. But all phenomena are empty of our own conceptual imputations. That sounds also, I can imagine many scientists saying, yeah, of course, of course. Nature doesn't speak in English and so forth. Nature doesn't say, I'm a pot, I'm a galaxy and so forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so often we label and we conceive of ourselves low self-esteem, high self-esteem, completely conflating what we are conceptually superimposing upon ourselves, let alone upon others, fusing, complete fusion. And so much trouble comes from it. This person is desirable. This person is undesirable. This is adversity. This is felicity. As if we're discovering it. As if they are already calling out. As if the conceptual label, conceptual imputation was already there and we simply discovered it. Delusional. Let's go from label to concept to conceptually designated entity. So there's gram. Gram is not a label. Gram is not a, a word. This person here, gram is not a concept. Not a concept either, no. Sentient being. But now we say gram is a sentient being. And there's a label. Oh, you're a sentient being. You're not a Buddha. You're a sentient being, right? And so there's the label. There's the thought. Gram is a sentient being. But there's also the sentient being that is imputed by that process. There is a sentient being there who I'm thinking of as a sentient being. I'm labeling as a sentient being. That sentient being who has been conceptually designated also is not there from its own side. The appearances, all the appearances, the appearances of Graham from anybody looking from outside, you know, touching him on the shoulder, looking at his face, looking, open up, ah, you know. All the appearances we can get, all the appearances that Graham can get as he observes his mind, emotions, feelings, memories, fantasies, and all of that, all of the appearances, all of those appearances, empty of the conceptually designated sentient being. Empty of the label sentient being, empty of the thought sentient being, empty of being a sentient being, which is conceptually designated. So, the parts are always empty of the whole that we superimpose upon them. Parts and whole in Tibetan, karasa, chadan chache, chadan chache. Chache would be the whole. In Tibetan, it's simply the attribute bearer, that which has parts, chache. The chache, the whole, is always conceptually imputed. Mark has a head, his head has attributes. The top of his head has attributes. His skin has attributes. And so forth. Has, has, has. cha is always conceptually designated, but the phenomena are empty of the cha Not inherently existent. The phenomena, the so-called attributes, are empty of the whole. And of course, if there's no whole, if there's no attribute haver, there are no attributes. You can't speak of attributes you have to speak, all attributes is always some, of something. And so, if the whole or the attribute bearer, the part bearer, is not there from its own side, something imputed, then the attributes, as attributes, are also not there from their own side. Because you can't have an attribute just floating about by itself, a quality that doesn't, you know, that's not, doesn't belong to something. So mind, mind, my mind, it's a noun, chachere, my mind, nyesem, my mind has attributes. I have an intelligent mind, old mind, a stupid mind, whatever, and a passionate mind, or a lethargic mind. Whatever it is, the mind has all these qualities. Look for, look for that mind that has the qualities and see if you can find it from its own side. I think, it's, I think it's very deep. Very deep. Let the one who is pondering, back to Padmasambhava, let the one who is pondering what is the mind like, observe that very consciousness and search for it. So, observe the consciousness, get the target, 
So you know you're looking in the right place. So last time I gave the example, oh, there's Thai, got the target, know where to look. And then having observed, now search. Now see what is, if there's a Thai from his own side, if there's a, if there's a Roger from his own side, not just the appearance, but if there's really someone over there, as I point my finger, his holiness often does this, Dalai Lama, when you're asking, what is empty? And I point my finger, there's Roger. There, Roger's right over there. Everybody look. There's, see my finger pointing? Right there. That's Roger. I'm getting him right in the center of my chest, of his chest. Boom, boom, right there. Good. Where from Roger's side? Now that we know where to look. Everybody knows where to look. Roger, right? Right there. So from Ro- what there is Roger? If we say Roger's there, good. What there? I'm observing. Now search. I'm pointing right at his shirt. You mean a shirt is Roger? A flowered shirt is Roger? I don't think so. Maybe we have to go deeper. Chest hair. That's a pretty lame excuse of a human being, you know. Chest skin. What's that bone called? Breastbone. Breastbone, yeah? Breastbone, men and women. Breastbone. And then heart. And then where to be found? Where to be found? So, similarly with mind. This is why he preceded this with shamatha focused on awareness. So you get the target. You're ascertaining consciousness. Just like I'm, I'm ascertaining Roger. It's no big deal. I know how to find Roger. There he is. I know him. There he is. Got him. Right? Similar fashion. Identify awareness. Shamata focus. Tsongkhapa calls this. Shamata focus on the mind. Good. Okay. I got it. I found it. What now? I've identified the conventional nature of the mind. Good. Now search for it. What is there from its own side? That one stroke right there, that's what shatters Chittamatra shatters the mind-only view, that the mind alone is ultimately and intrinsically real. This is the death blow to the notion that mind is ultimately real. Well, all the appearances are merely empty, but the mind, the great projector, is real. This is the death blow to that. Oh, yeah. Observe in reality is the so-called mind something that exists. And of course, as we, as we ask the question, does something exist? When a physicist asks, does such and such exist? Just about invariably. What he or she is asking is, is it really there? Is this merely an artifact of the system measurement? Is it an aberration? Is it a computer glitch? Is it real? Is it really there? That energy pulse, that quasar, that dark... That, dark, that black hole or what have you. When they ask, is it, does it exist? Oh, they mean exactly. Is it really there? From its own side, by its own nature. That's the question we're asking here of the mind. In here, subjectively. Is there really something called the mind? Is it something that exists? If it does, it should have shape. And that again, for a lot of us, not just materialists, not just people in the modern world, but when we think, does it exist? We want to touch it. Like if you see a mirage, you say, Does that, is that really there? Let's go see if we can touch it. Oh, no, it wasn't really there. That doesn't exist. Uh, reflection in a pool of water. Oh, is it, is it really there? Uh, no, it's not really there. So when we th- exist, a lot of us will think, that exists? well, is it something you can touch? Is, is it really there? Does it have some physicality to it? So that's not just a modern notion. So he's suggesting, well, go with that. If you think that existence predicates or is based upon the assumption that it's got some physical location and if it has physical location presumably some shape although physics doesn't go along with that physics has some real anomalies coming up like electrons for example generally elementary particles elementary particles and this is this is just across the board physics not some esoteric physics elementary particles like an electron they're said to have location and no spatial dimension at all an electron is said to have zero spatial dimension. It's not even a little bit of a diameter. It's a, it's a geometrical point. That's odd. You're saying it's got charge? It, does. it has mass? Yes. Has velocity? Yes. Has spin? Yes. Electron has a lot of qualities. Those are four of them. Right? And it's located in a particular place. Yeah, more or less. It's a bit fuzzy because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah, but more or less, yeah. And now this thing that has the mass and velocity and spin and charge, electromagnetic charge, um, how big is it? Oh, not zero big. 
zero big, has no spatial dimension whatsoever. But he's assuming if the mind has some location, it must have a shape. Okay, what's the shape? An electron has no shape. We tend to think of it as like a little BB, like a little, little tiny, tiny, tiny pearl. Think again. Not imaginable. What sort, of, so what sort of a shape does it have? Look nakedly and seek it out. Decisively look to, what, to see what sort of a shape it has, whether it is a sphere, a triangle, a rectangle, semicircle, or a triangle, and so on. If you say it has none at all, show me. If you say it has one at all, show me that shape. If you say it, there is nothing to show, tell me whether it is possible for there to be a real shape that cannot be shown. Are there invisible shapes? Do you think it has a shape that you can't see? This is, again, this is so relevant to modernity. I mean, it's remarkable. This is 1,200 years old from an entire... It could be another planet, frankly. I mean, Tibet, 1,200 years ago. I mean, it may as well have been on Mars. It has so little contact, almost zero, with everything we're doing around the Mediterranean basin. I mean, Tibet and the Mediterranean basin? Marco Polo kind of glanced through once, and that was about it. You know, they have virtually no contact at all. But now consider this in modern physics. Again, if you ask a lot of physicists nowadays, but this traces right back to Descartes and Galileo. Okay, this, this, this iPhone, um, there it is. It, it appears to be, the case appears to be gray. And as a physicist, is the, is the gray, the, the color, is that actually a quality of the molecules and atoms? They say no. How about the hardness and the smoothness? The hard, it's hard, but it's also the face is smooth. That hardness, is that, is that actually a quality of the atoms, the molecules? No. The smoothness? No. Uh, the sound that I hear, is that actually in the molecules themselves? No. No. So these are all just subjective impressions, right? This is the distinction between primary and secondary attributes. It goes right back to Descartes and earlier. So these are secondary. These are relational to my perceptions, right? If I were a bumblebee, I would see it differently. If I were a rattlesnake, I'd see it differently and so forth. But now we can ask, well... But what's there from its own side? When nobody's looking, what's there from its own side? Right. That is not dependent, that is not subjective, not relative, but is really absolutely there from the iPhone side. And they'll come up with statements like shape. Shape. You, I mean, you mean, you mean this gray, that, that gray shape? No, it's not gray. It's a shape that doesn't have any color. It's a shape that doesn't have any color. has mass. You mean the heaviness? No, 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 no. Heaviness is a tactile sensation. It's not heaviness. It's just mass. In other words, it's mass that you really can't feel. It's independent of feeling. Yeah, that's right. It's got a location? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's got a location. It's got a shape. But it's a shape you can't really see. And it's got a mass, but you can't really feel because that's independent of feeling. So they are talking about Shapes that you can't see. Quite interesting. And is that possible? That very distinction now is being completely discarded by cutting-edge physicists such as Anton Seilinger. Say, we have no knowledge. We have no knowledge about the iPhone independently of systems of measurement. Everything we know is information derived from systems of measurement. And what's there independent of all system measurement is simply unknowable. So he says, identify the emptiness of shape. Let's move right on. There's one more very cool point from Yang Tan Rinpoche. So likewise, let yourself check up to see whether it has any color, size, or dimension. Does that have any attributes of something that actually has location in physical space? Because a lot of us think, if, if you are a traditional Tibetan, you think your mind is probably in, in, in the heart. Nowadays, most people, including a lot of young Tibetans, think it's up in there in the head. Okay, it's got location. So exactly, oh, so, okay, so your mind is inside. Is it the same size as the brain? Or is it just maybe, maybe it's only part of the brain. Maybe it's just the frontal cortex. But then that leaves out the emotions. Oh, exactly how much of your brain does your mind occupy? Is it it's just like, is it kind of like the same shape as the brain, but invisible? We're rattling the cage of the reification of mind. If you say that it has none of these, no color, size, or dimension, then observe whether it is an emptiness that is nothing. Is a mind simply a label with no referent? If you say that it is an emptiness that is nothing, then how could an emptiness that is nothing know how to meditate? 
that doesn't make any sense. Nothing doesn't know how to meditate. And if your mind is just nothing, and you're meditating with your mind, then now you're speaking gibberish. So what good is it to say you cannot find it? Just not finding it is pretty lame, like my not finding Annie the other day. Doesn't look carefully enough. So, look steadily right at that. If you do not discover what it is like, carefully check whether this, the consciousness that wonders whether it is itself the mind... Uh, I, 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 I stumble on this one. If you do not discover what it is like, carefully check whether the consciousness that wonders where it is, is itself the mind. That's why there's a typo. Yeah. Where it is, is itself the mind. Okay, I'm going to read it again. If you do not discover what it is like, carefully check whether the consciousness that wonders where it is, is itself the mind. If it is, what is it like? So there you are looking for the mind, looking for the mind, not finding it. Then ask, well, what is it that's looking for the mind? Maybe that's the mind, in which case check that one out. So take one step back and look at that. Since you're, after all, you're engaging in the meditation with your mind, investigate that which is doing the investigation. If it exists, there must be a substance and a color, but are they forthcoming? They exist in physical space, but do you find them? If it does not exist, you'd be like, if that is the mind doesn't exist, consciousness doesn't exist at all, you'd be like an unconscious corpse. But isn't there someone who thinks? Isn't there someone... Doesn't your mind feel a bit frustrated when engaging in this practice? Well, this mind that feels frustrated, look at that! It must exist. If it feels frustrated, if it's saturated by a feeling of frustration or feeling of inadequacy or I can't really do this, do I really have to do this? Can I just not go back to the breath? Oh, yeah. Thus, within the parameters of existence and non-existence, decisively observe how it is. In that way, draw your awareness in and direct it within the parameters of existence and non-existence. And this is where it goes the deepest in terms of the preceding point from Yangtan Rinpoche. We say, Graham is a sentient being. The appearances, whatever is there, is empty of the label sentient being, empty of the thought sentient being, and there is no one there who is the imputed sentient being. All of those are relational, imputed, projected, superimposed by conceptual mind. Well, how about Graham exists? Graham is an existent entity, let alone sentient being. Okay, Graham is an existent entity, or simply Graham exists. Once again, it's a label, it's a concept, it's an imputed object. The very demarcation of existence and non-existence. These two are labels. Two are labels. So Rikpa, Buddha nature, goes beyond that. If you ask, does Buddha nature, does it exist? It's beyond existence and non-existence. These are two labels that we're superimposing and emptying it. And Rikpa is devoid of both. Devoid of our conceptual constructs of existence. And as a philosopher, and you'll certainly know that philosophers East and West for centuries and centuries have defined existence in multiple ways. They haven't discovered the definition of existence. Otherwise, they'd discover the same thing, like discovering Jupiter. Okay, there it is. We discovered it. But no, we, different systems, different conceptual frameworks have formulated different definitions of consciousness. As an example of that, when I was studying philosophy of mind at Stanford, I asked my professor, what's the status of a visualized object? If I visualize the Buddha or visualize an orange, a mental image comes up. There's an orange. I invite you right now. Imagine an orange. Saloma. Imagine, imagine an orange. Nice, bright orange, orange. And I asked, what, I asked my professor, What's the nature of that phenomenon? That mental image. And he said, it doesn't exist. And I looked at him like he just said, Banano bananas are frugal buckle. Like, bananas are frugal buckle? Like, I really, that image doesn't exist? And I said, why? And he says, because it has no physical attributes. So that was his definition. Okay? Something, if it's not physical, doesn't exist. That makes your life a lot simpler. <laughs> Sterile is a cup of sand, but simpler. 
Oh, yeah. So within the parameters, existence and non-existence. So I won't elaborate on that. Did that last time. Let's move right on. Due to differences in intellect, some may report that they find nothing within the parameters of existence and non-existence. They ask, they try to investigate, is there something that is inherently existent? Is it really there, this mind? Not finding. Is it absolutely not there, inherently not there? Well, then we have these problems. Then how come thoughts and images and desires and distracted thoughts and so forth are all coming out of the mind? How can it be non-existent if it's just churning out? emotions and thoughts and so forth. And yet you look for that which is churning out all the thoughts. The locus, in the location in which all these thoughts are taking place, in my mind, coming from my mind, in my mind. Good, where's the mind? Oh, don't find it. Must be there. It's in the mind. They're coming from the mind. Where is it? Where are all these things coming from? Not finding. So you can't rest in identifying it as being really there, inherently existent, but you can't rest in it's really not existent. Inherently not existent. Otherwise, it wouldn't do anything. Your mind would never trouble you. Wouldn't that be nice? But there's a bit, bit more to go. So some find nothing within the parameters of existence and non-existence. Let them carefully examine the mind that thinks that nothing is found. So he, he's relentless. Even when you come to the conclusion, he just he's not going to let you off the hook until you've broken through all the reifications. And that is, you say, ah, I get it. It's like solving the koan. I get it. It's neither inherently real, otherwise it would be findable. It's not absolutely unreal, otherwise it wouldn't do anything. I get it. Good. What's the nature of that which just drew that conclusion? And he throws you right back in again. Let them carefully examine the mind that thinks nothing is found. Is there something there that is steady? As you're observing the mind, is there something steady still? Is there something that is still? Is there a clarity or luminosity? As you're just steadily observing and then searching for the mind. Is there a steady emptiness, a sheer vacuity? Examine. So he's throwing you back into experience. If they, the students, if they report that there is a stillness, that is quiescence or shamatha. Just translate shamatha as quiescence. If you're finding just that stillness, that's the, sh that's the quiescent aspect, the shamatha aspect. That is not the mind, that's an attribute of the mind. The mind has become quiescent. You've achieved shamatha with your mind. Good. What is the mind that has achieved shamatha? That has come to rest in shamatha. Seek out awareness and come up with its nature. If they say that it is an emptiness, that is one aspect. So in other words, partially right. He's, so let them seek out awareness. If you just come to emptiness, you might feel, okay, it's just a vacuity, just a void, just an absence, just empty space. But if that's all you're getting, you're getting one aspect. So go back in again and seek out awareness. If they say there is a consciousness that is sort of stationary and sort of clear, so stationary and clear, stationary, still, and yet luminous, but inexpressible. Inexpressible means they're attending to it without the labels. They're attending closely to something on which they have not superimposed and configured the experience with their labels. Their concepts. They're actually moving out of the matrix, the network of conceptual imputation, moving into the phenomenon. If that's the case, they have identified it a little bit. So they should come to certainty and identify it. In other words, they're going in the right direction, but don't be complacent. Don't be satisfied too quickly. So we're seeing two themes crop up, and it's on this point that I'm going to end. Not too bad, it's only 35 minutes. And he said, if they say it's an emptiness, that's one aspect. In other words, he's suggesting, okay, if you're seeing emptiness, okay, that's, there's something to that. Don't throw that out. There is something there. On the other hand, but then he throws you back. If all you're getting is emptiness, he seeks, seek out awareness. And then he asks, he raises this issue of the clarity or the luminosity.
So this is the final theme. I'll just maybe, is there anything? Yeah, I'm going to just read it at the end and, and then the final comment. Um, so if they get something that's still and it's luminous, sort of clear, kind of luminous, and it's got that empty quality, they've identified it a little bit, so they should go and get certainty and identify it that let this phase of practice last for one day or as long as necessary. So... This doesn't actually have to be such a long, drawn-out ordeal if you've achieved shamatha. Because when you want to focus on awareness, you can do so kind of as long as you like. Sit down and do this for four hours. You know, you're just holding the bead, holding the target. Just like a telescope, one of those telescopes, the, the, the rather nice ones that, ha- that are machine-mounted. Machine-mounted. And so and, and, you know, for $1,000, 2000 you can get one of these. Uh, and then they track. So, so since the Earth is rotating, uh, they track the stars, the planets, and so forth across the sky. So you don't have to keep on bumping it over to kind of catch up. But there's just a little motor in there, and it tracks. In other words, you can be l- looking right through the telescope at the same object, at Mars or Jupiter or what, Venus, what have you, and be able to just hold on for, you know, for four hours. And because you've got that motor just tracking it exactly, then you can get a really long exposure. And then, then you might be able to discover the phases of Venus and so on. So similarly, if you have that stability and vividness and you've already nailed consciousness, you've discovered the sign of the mind. You've found the target. There's Roger. There's Ty. This doesn't have to be so difficult. You've found it and you can, you can do this so efficiently. You sit down for four hours and you do that for four hours rather than sit, sitting down without shamatha and sitting for four hours and doing it for ten minutes. You know, while the other three hours and fifty minutes, you're da, 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 dee, 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 doing all kinds of other things, you know. <laughs> so the point that I, the final point that I wanted to raise in a directive from Yangtanabuch's guidance. Very, very deep. And I'll fill in a little bit from what we're doing here. And that is, let's just go back to settling the mind in its natural state. And the themes are emptiness and luminosity. Dong sel, dong sel, dong sel. Comes up so many times. Empty and clear, empty and luminous. Dong sel comes up all the time in multiple contexts. So let's just go back simply. Now let's kind of, we're going to skim right through the meditations that we're familiar with. And I'll, I'll light on or touch briefly on some meditations that a number of you are familiar with. Some may, may not be, but I'll be very brief. Settling the mind. You've, already, you've all been introduced to it. You all have some, some sense of how to do it. At least, maybe you're very adept. As you're attending to those images of thoughts and so forth that arise in the space of the mind, as Lerap Limba says, you become more and more familiar, you'll have that non-conceptual certainty that nothing can harm your mind whether or not thoughts have ceased. And how does that occur? And that is in the, the appearances, the thoughts, the memories, the imaginations, mental images and so forth that arise. Whatever arises there in the space of the mind, those are displays of the luminosity of your substrate consciousness. Right? Like in a dream, dreamscape, lucid dream, non-lucid dream, whatever it may be, vivid dream, especially vivid dream. What are they? where they seem so realistic that you feel like you could definitely be awake. You could hardly believe you're not awake. You can't believe you're not awake. It's just too vivid, too totally realistic. And where are all those appearances coming from? What illuminates them? What makes them manifest? Of course, the substrate consciousness. Or you can just say, your mind. Just want to speak in vernacular. Your mind is illuminating everything in the dreamscape. Nothing else is. Neurons aren't illuminating it. They're dark. Photons don't illuminate it. They don't have any color. They don't illuminate anything. Mind alone illuminates. Consciousness alone illuminates. So you're getting the luminosity as you're attending to in the midst of a lucid dream or in the, tens, in the, in the midst of a very lucid session of settling the mind in its natural state. There is a luminosity. It's being displayed to you, the appearances of thoughts, images, and so forth. And as you become more and more adept in the practice, gaining deeper, deeper insight, you see that whatever is arising there, it is utterly devoid of any substantial existence at all. It's just an appearance. There is nothing to it than appearance. This is the space of the mind. There are no molecules there. There's nothing physical whatsoever. 
And if you're truly, I mean, insofar as you're lucid in the midst of a dream, then you know all that's taking place in the space of the mind. There is not a molecule, there's nothing physical. It is empty of physicality, empty of materiality. And therefore, you are invulnerable. And your presence in the lucid dream, your presence while you're settling the mind is natural state, you're kiting into the wind of the thoughts, your awareness is insubstantial, non-physical. Everything that's appearing to you is non-physical. Again, physical things can hurt. If I threw this towards Haggai, I, I could bruise him with an iPhone. With an iPhone. So you know, he's got molecules in his body. i got molecules in the iPhone. I could bruise him if I threw it, right? But if Haggai's having a lucid dream and this big goblin Alan, this iPhone thrower, is throwing iPhones in all directions, you know, he's got nothing to fear. He's in a lucid dream. Give it your best shot. Throw me, you know, throw me a 60-mile-an-hour iPhone. You know, you've not got you no know, molecules in it. So there's the first one. Settling the mind in its natural state, whatever appears is empty of anything substantial, empty of physicality, empty of materiality. It has no power to help or harm. Not by itself. Only be if we grasp. And so there is the luminosity. And it is empty. Both so luminous in a, in a lucid dream that it seems as realistic as in the waking state. But because you are lucid, you know this is empty of physicality. There's nothing really there. There's nothing really there. right? So there's step one. Step two, awareness of awareness. Awareness of awareness. You release all appearances. You go right into the very nature of awareness itself. You experience that just that sheer luminosity, that wakefulness, that brightness, that aliveness. And let's just call it luminosity. You are immediately experiencing the luminosity of your own consciousness. There it is, luminosity. But it's empty. It's indivisible. This substrate consciousness is not something apart from the substrate. It's not like substrate's over there and the substrate consciousness someplace else. It, when you're immersed in that experience of shamatha, immersed in that, it's quite a unit of experience. Not absolutely, but there's no clear differentiation. My substrate consciousness over here and over yonder, about five feet away, that's where the substrate is. No. So the substrate is the emptiness. It is a vacuity. It's empty of appearances. And yet it's illuminated by the luminosity of awareness itself. Luminosity and emptiness. Previously, it was empty of all physicality, materiality, and now it's empty of all appearances. And yet, it's still, lu- it's still luminous. It's not flat. It's not dead. Not when you're resting in the substrate consciousness. Right? Emptiness and luminosity. Then Yang Tanabuchi takes us back to the Heart Sutra. Back to the Heart Sutra. And he says, in Vajrayana and Dzogchen, there are many, many references to Tongsel, Tongsel, empty and luminous, empty and luminous. He said, you will not understand what is meant in Vajrayana, and specifically, you will not understand the meaning of these terms, empty and luminous, empty and luminous, in the context of Dzogchen. You'll not get it, unless in the Sutrayana, unless you have a Sutrayana basis. This is so often skipped by people who are popularizing, trying to try to make this all accessible so people can have a, a weekend retreat on Dzogchen and said, I got it, I got it. That's great. It's like junior high school kids going and getting a really cool seminar on quantum mechanics by some very, very fine expositor of quantum mechanics, and then going home after a weekend, Mommy, Daddy, I got quantum mechanics. I got it. You know? Yeah, good. You want to run? Start, show me how you use, your, use the Schrodinger wave equation. What's that? Well, that's what makes it possible to do quantum mechanics. He didn't talk about that. He just talked about these cool things. So, Yananabhaji said, you will not get it unless you understand the meaning of the Heart Sutra, emptiness, form is empty. Zuk tombao, tomani zukso. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. He said, you must understand that. And now, this is not just during the dream state, of course. This is in all states. In the waking state, form being all appearances arising at the mind. And that's followed by saying feelings and discernment, mental formations and consciousness. But we'll stick with form because that's the classic and ever so often quoted statement. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. And seeing that they are not distinct. It's not the form is here and here's the, here's the abyss or here's the void. The appearance is over here. And then if you look beyond the appearances, 
tear the screen of appearances, pull back the curtain on appearances. <gasps> the abyss. That's really good if you're reading The Heart of Darkness and Joseph Conrad and so forth, but it really is not emptiness. You know? So translating emptiness as the void, I think, is really misleading. It's re- it really, the void seems like, boy, pull back the screen, and it's, we have to say it this way, the void. If I had a much deeper voice, I would say, the void. Right. And you know you want to avoid the void. <laughs> it's just empty. The appearances themselves, all appearances, empty. Empty of what? Empty of the labels. Empty of the concepts. Empty of the con- conceptually designated objects that have the appearances as their attributes. The appearances themselves are empty. Right? But now I say, but now just when you're slipping off to, oh, you mean... There's the void. Yeah, but emptiness is nothing other than the appearances. It's not apart from the appearances. They're completely non-dual. So you must understand that. So what are these appearances? Luminosity. What is emptiness? Emptiness. Emptiness and luminosity. Empty and luminosity. It's the essence of the Heart Sutra. Then go to stage of generation. Now, not all of you have experience in this, but some of you do, and so I'll be very brief there. But imagine, imagine you've achieved shamatha. Okay, try it again. Imagine you've achieved, <laughs> okay, imagine you've achieved shamatha. And you've achieved shamatha by, you know, awareness of awareness. Just resting right there in the substrate consciousness and experiencing the substrate as well. Just like that. Imagine you've also realized emptiness because it's only really with those two that you're really fully prepared to venture into state regeneration practice and get the full realization and benefit from it. So imagine at will, you can just shut down the world by withdrawing your awareness from all these sensory appearances, all impure appearances, and just going into the black hole of substrate consciousness. Totally luminous inside. That's what a black hole is, right? Sucked all the light in and then closed the curtain around it. And so then into the substrate consciousness. In the substrate consciousness, you've just practiced Vipassana, you've realized the empty nature of your own substrate consciousness. So now a deeper realization of emptiness and luminosity. Because your mind itself is empty. Those appearances of the luminosity of your own mind is empty. Right. And then out of that, imagine then you allow the creative aspect of your awareness to display out of a seed syllable, let's say, Avalokiteshvara, out of the seed syllable, Hri, upon a lotus, sun, and moon disk, lotus, moon, and sun disk, arise at the seed syllable, Hri, just out of emptiness. Upon the lotus, moon, and sun disk. And then Hri just transforms, just like a special effects movie transforms right into Avalokiteshvara. And you are Avalokiteshvara. Now with the three at your heart, the Om Mani Hum syllable at your heart. And there you are. And you've taken on the divine pride. You've taken on pure appearances. And it's vivid. Because bear in mind, you can visualize this now as, about as clearly as you can dream. In other words, about as clear as waking reality. Okay. So imagine you've now taken on this archetypal form of Avalokiteshvara. Radiant, splendorous, brilliant, white. All the ornamentation, all the features there. It's the seed syllable, the omanipemahung at your heart. And now you start to engage in the activities of Avalokiteshvara, sending out light and so forth and so on. Doing the various activities of the sadhana. Yandanamachi said, right there. If you now grasp onto the deity as being really there. Oh, I'm a deity. I always wanted to be a deity. <laughs> now I am one. Cool. Or maybe you have other deities coming in. Oh, great. All these deities. You know, they're all coming in in this conversion. Oh, man, all these deities coming in. I love it. All these big gods coming in. Oh, like I'm a beehive and all the bees are coming home. Oh, oh. I really like that. 
if you're reifying the deities, the whole thing stops. You're not going anywhere. You just hit a dead end. You hit, hit a brick wall. If you're reifying any of these appearances, thinking they're really there from their own side, the Buddha's coming in, the rays of light going out, the offering goddesses and all of that, if you think they're really there, then, okay, just stop and go back and watch your breath or do something else. Get a cup of tea. Because this ain't going anywhere. This is not stage of generation. This is just make-believe. So the luminosity, the radiance, the clarity, the vividness of all the appearances, that's the luminosity. And they're all empty of inherent nature. Emptiness and luminosity. Stage of generation. Then he goes to stage of completion. And he throws in another one. Stage of completion practice. Again, some of you may have a, a, a wee bit of a how do you say, introduction to that. So I'll be extremely brief. Here you are very explicitly moving the pranas within the body, with it, through the nadis, the channels, the, the chakras, the, the bindus, the vital essences, the drops. And through this is generated, stage of completion practice, generated multiple whole dimensions of bliss, four levels of bliss in particular. Bliss arises big time. He says it's very easy to, re- to reify the bliss. Now it's not so much an appearance. It's a, obviously a subjective experience of bliss, and it's so easy to reify that. If you do, you've just blocked it. So now it's bliss and emptiness, bliss and emptiness. That especially relates to stage of completion practice. That you're experiencing the bliss, but while experiencing it, you realize it's empty nature. That's what liberates. That's what liberates. Okay? So there it's bliss and emptiness. And then finally, we just went through Maha Yoga, we went through Anu Yoga, and now we go to Ati Yoga. Dzogchen. And that's where we'll stop. Dzogchen. And now it's all about Rikpa. All about pristine awareness. Also called clear light awareness. Innate mind of clear light. It's by nature luminous, but now primordially luminous. Primordial. Deeper, deeper, deeper. Infinitely deeper than the luminosity of the substrate consciousness. It is that which illuminates the whole of reality pervades the whole of reality. It's not local. It's not localized. It's not even localized in time. But by nature luminous, it is that which manifests the universe and the myriad universes. And and yet, when Rikpa ascertains itself, it ascertains itself as empty, as primordially non-dual from Dhammadhatu. Dhammadatu is shunyata. Dhammadatu is emptiness, is nirvana. Dhammadatu is emptiness. And the emptiness is luminosity. And the luminosity is emptiness. The rikpa is primordially non-dual from Dhammadatu. And that's the ultimate of luminosity and emptiness. That's, now you hit primordial ground. And welcome home, because now you've realized who you are. So there's really perennial wisdom here. It is so deep, and it manifests in so many different ways. Go back to the Delphic Oracle. What was some of the earliest wisdom coming from the entire Greek tradition? Know thyself. Know thyself. Layer upon layer upon layer and layer until you come to the ultimate ground. Then you really know who you are. And to know who you are is to be a Buddha. That's Dzogchen to not know who you are and to mistake that which you are not for who you are is to be a sentient being. On that note, let's jump right in. So there is one point I would, I would l- like to have question and answer, but I think what I'm about to say is valuable. That's why I'm going to say it. And that is now that we've read through this twice, especially the concluding paragraph, uh, if one is really holding together a lot of what I've commented, especially over the last three or four days, one might think, oh, right towards the end, we have a judge, we have an experienced attorney here leading the witness, leading the witness. And that he's saying, okay, he's saying now, if you, got, if you get the emptiness, you're a bit right. Ah, that's what I should be doing. If you're getting luminosity, that's right. Oh, okay, I should be doing that. And what was the third? Stillness. If you're getting still, oh, okay, I'm getting, okay, now I know where to go. I know, I know the right answers. 
I know the right answers, and I'm going to meditate to make sure I get the right answers, and I'm going to be a good Buddhist, and I'm going to experience just what Padmasambhava told me to experience, in which case, why are we not falling into the same trap that is widely and exaggeratingly uh, said to be the, the reason for the, the complete expulsion of introspection from academic psychology? And it's still expelled. It plays no significant role in academic psychology at all. Clinical psychology, yes, to something to read. Academic, uh-uh. Not cognitive, not affective, no way. No one. You show me the, psych- the one psych- psychology introductory course where students are trained in a rigorous, sophisticated fashion in developing their metacognitive ability, introspection. Uh, not on this planet, at least not in any mainstream university. So it was expelled. Well, it was expelled for many reasons, many of them ideological. And that's why it's still expelled today, ideological. Scientific materialism will not tolerate this. That is, science has to be objective, quantifiable, and focusing on the physical. Introspection doesn't live up to any of those, therefore throw it out. And it's still thrown out on dogmatic and ideological grounds. But was, were there any pragmatic reasons for throwing it out? And the answer is yes. They had not polished this method of inquiry. It was very, very crude. Number one, they didn't do any training of attention of any significance, so that's a major problem. And then the second one is leading the witness, leading the witness, that the subjects would wind up seeing what the, exper- the researchers kind of wanted or expected or led them to believe they would see. So why does this not fall into the same pitfall? Or postmodernists, and there are many of them, analyzing religion, analyzing mysticism, contemplative practice, saying, oh, it's just, it's just, you're just sitting there and indoctrinating yourself. Just get, you know, you're taking the catechism and just internalizing it and brainwashing yourself to think you're experiencing what you're supposed to experience. So why is, how is this immune? If it is immune, how is this immune from that very, very harsh, devastating criticism? Because if that's all that's taking place, we've traveled halfway around the world to indoctrinate ourselves. Oh, good heavens, you could have done that at home. You know, just get some good whatever. And so here's a response to that. It's a legitimate qualm. It's a very legitimate qualm. And it happens a lot when people don't meditate. That is, there are all kinds of scholars, Buddhist scholars, let alone Western scholars, academically trained scholars, but Buddhist scholars trained in Buddhist monasteries. And they are studying for year after year after year after year. And what they're learning by means of logic and memorization is all the right answers. And then they go off to a Buddhist college and they teach all the right answers based upon their memorization and their debating skills. And so I don't see how that's immune from basically, you know, very sophisticated self-indoctrination. And then if they just go directly from that to meditation, and it's just basically doing the rehearsal of what they learned while they were pure scholastics, then I don't see how that's immune. I really don't see how that's immune. With this one caveat, and of course it's the same in the Nyingma monasteries. I mean, they're also, they're debating a little bit, they're studying an awful lot, they may go for 10, 12 years with no serious meditation. They may follow that by decades of no serious meditation, but some do meditate. How if... And, and as you can imagine, I believe this can be can be immune from that very devastating critique. How so? Especially when you, you kind of know the right answers. It's like there's a book, I think, out there someplace that shows the answers to a whole lot of koans. You can buy a koan answer book, right? And then you can, before you go to the Roshi, memorize one. Okay, oh, cool. I'm ready. Man, am I ready. <laughs> I'm really ready. Give me the koan. I get an A, you know? So it's possible to do that. I mean, you can fake it, but of course, any Roshi will know it's complete baloney what you're doing and ask you to leave. So now, to cut to the chase, how is this immune if it is immune? And that is, if this is done with the integrity that's encouraging us to have, and that is keep on going back to your experience, back to your experience, this is not just philosophy. And it's not just science, and it's not just religion. And that is... I was trained in science. I ran multiple experiments in physics. I've worked with neuroscientists running multiple experiments in neuroscience. So I do have actually some background there. And once you've run the experiment, you've gotten your data, it doesn't transform you as a human being in any significant way whatsoever. It wasn't intended to, and therefore you shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't. But you've made, it, you've made a discovery or you've corroborated an earlier discovery, but nobody expected that it would really change you as a human being. And the same is true in neuroscience. So now you know that this type of EEG signature comes from this. You know this type of part of the brain is activating when you do this. You know the chemicals in your blood are changed when this do this and so forth and so on. 
But the, the neuroscientists aren't radically changed by getting, you know, publishing one paper after another after another. Nobody expected them to be changed. I mean, they're just coming up with information, which they publish in their peer-reviewed journals. So in that sense, this is not science in the sense that you're, getting, you're making discoveries that are out there and you publish in a paper and they just kind of keep on going through, but they don't really significantly change you at all. You may as well be a plumber, a bookkeeper, a carpenter. None of those are bad professions. Neither is being a science, but none of those really radically transform the person. This is not science, not science like that. It's not philosophy where you're just working with logic. This is radically empirical. So this isn't philosophy unless you're a William Jamesian. And it's not religion. I mean, really, what part of that was religion? If you, if, you, if you bring to mind the label and the concept religion, what part fits to what we just read? And to my mind, basically nothing at all. And so if it's not philosophy and it's not science and religion, what is it? It's a science of, of liberation. If, I mean, if I give one more label that I think is at least close and not drastically misleading, it's science in the sense that this is aimed at knowledge and nothing less. But knowledge for the sake of liberation. So how do, we avoid, how do we avoid the very severe and devastating criticism? This is just brainwashing. And that is this. This type, of in, this type of inquiry in the nature of your own mind and whether it exists by its own inherent nature, when you gain the insight, it's cutting to the root of samsara. It's cutting to the root of your mental afflictions. And your mental afflictions less and less and less arise until they don't arise at all. You're tapping into the very wellsprings of genuine happiness. You tap deeper, 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 deeper into this. There arises the bliss of the union of shamatha and vipassana. There's the bliss of achieving shamatha. That's very cool, substrate consciousness. But there is an immeasurably deeper bliss that is arising from the union of shamatha and vipassana. Profoundly transformative. It is very deep eudaimonia. A truth-given joy. That's the term from St. Augustine. A truth-given joy. It is so profound. It is life-transforming. It is life-transforming to have your mental afflictions healed from their source so no matter what happens, the craving doesn't happen. The anger doesn't arise. The envy doesn't arise. Arrogance does not arise. And yet, as you tap into this very emptiness itself, it opens up the wellsprings of compassion. And compassion does arise much more easily and loving-kindness, and empathy. Because now that you've broken down the reified barriers of subject and object, my side, your side, you've broken that down, and you are perceiving all phenomena as mutually interdependent, how can you avoid empathy when others don't even radically exist other than yourself? So this is insight that transforms the one who gains the insight, transforms it in the deepest, most irreversible, and most meaningful possible fashion. And if it doesn't do that, you're faking it, or you haven't gotten there yet. So that, to my mind, is a very powerful response to the notion this is just self-indoctrination. It's just brainwashing. You're just learning all the right answers. You learn all the right answers, they won't change you any more than reading all the answers at the end of the koan book. And to think that's going to change you. That's absurd. It's a memorization. You may as well read the memorize the telephone book. And like, if that's all you do here, just memorize the right answer. It could have been a telephone book. It's not going to change you at all. It will not purify. You'll not find the joy. You'll not find the compassion. It will not change your way of viewing reality. And this, when you, when you fathom its depths, it is a profound revolution, radical revolution in the way you view reality. It will radically shift your whole priorities, your sense of values. It will have a profound impact on your way of life. It will liberate you from mental afflictions and all of the myriad suffering that comes from mental afflictions. It will open up the wellsprings of virtue and it will give you genuine happiness. You can't fake that. You can't fake it. And so I think Padmasambhava is perfectly justified to give us some very clear hints of what are the right answers to let you know how to navigate, how to navigate. But of course, to try to do that just by reading, the, reading his three pages and then running off to a cave for 10 years, a bit difficult, a bit difficult. And this is why the whole relationship with the teacher. Keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it moving. Keep it... I was thinking about this came come up, I think, yesterday. No, today's Monday, isn't it? Day before, day before yesterday. Enthusiastic dissatisfaction. And that is, if you're just dissatisfied, 
you're, you didn't get as much out of this seven, seven weeks as you're hoping for, and now it's almost over. And oh, I was hoping, I was hoping it would be stage four. Not stage four. Stage two. And I was hoping to experience this incredible, inexpressible bliss like the animals would come crowding around me and the little birds would land on my shoulders when I'm practicing loving kindness. And they're not. You know, they're just not. I mean, a lizard came into my room. But, <laughs> but he left. I don't think it's a good sign. She could have stayed for a while. You know. I'm, actually, I'm telling you the truth. A lizard came and he actually left. I thought, you know, oh, I got a company. He spent one day, he's gone. I didn't even know how he got out of the room. I closed the door. Okay, I got some company, you know. <laughs> he found a way out, you know. <laughs> so, so there it is. This isn't like anything. Except for other contemplative paths, authentic contemplative paths of inquiry. And that way it is. It's not, this is the only way. But it's not religion. If you've got your category of religion, if you superimpose it on it, this is empty of religion. If you're holding a thought, philosophy, this is empty of philosophy. If you've got some idea of science, this is empty of science. It is what you experience it to be when you practice it authentically. And if you do that, it liberates. And there's no faking that. No faking it. Emma. How wonderful. Enjoy your evening.